Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller. I'm Susie Younger. An African-American licensed psychotherapist. I'm also a licensed therapist. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias. Anything that marginalizes and oppresses. As a white woman, I ask the questions white people are too afraid to ask. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, Susie and I will have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? Hi, everyone. So excited for our next guest. Ava Greenfield and I have a personal relationship. She was my assistant back in the day. Before I was a therapist, I was an agent. She's risen to the top echelon of the agent world. She's now one of the top lit agents at ICM Partners. She represents notable Black filmmakers such as Regina King and many others. She's been fighting and advocating for unheard Black voices throughout her career, which has brought her passion for justice to the forefront of her peers. If it weren't for Ava, the movie Hair Story wouldn't have won an Academy Award. Welcome, Ava Greenfield. Hi, Susie. Hi, everyone. So great to be here. Really is a, just a, such a pleasure. I'm a fan of the show anyway, so this is so exciting to be a part of it. Excellent. Thank you so much. And as I said before we got on air, it's so nice to meet you. I've heard so many wonderful things about you, so I'm looking forward to getting to know you a little bit better. So the first question I have for you is, can you tell us a story of your childhood that would kind of show us who you are today? Oh, wow. <laughs> we like to keep it simple on here. It doesn't really have a beginning, middle, and an end, but something I always talk about is how I was like a latchkey kid and, you know, my mom worked, but, you know, it was usually, you know, usually home shortly after I worked or, or you know, after work, but sometimes had to run errands and things like that. And, you know, my dad always worked from like, you know, like nine to six. Okay. So I would get home from school and I loved to watch TV. Like this is back in the day when you were allowed to watch, like, like there was sort of, I was always allowed to watch TV except for when I was actually doing my homework. So I sort of grew up on television, on repeats, you know, we didn't have cable until I got to high school. So I truly grew up watching whatever came on after school. That could be Charlie's Angels reruns. That could be Three's Company reruns, whatever it was. And just sort of loving and being in love with TV really sort of drove my interest in sort of pop culture and sort of understanding how movies were made. It was, I really remember like going to the movies all the time with one of my sisters. Like I just sort of loved watching TV and film. And so anyway, I was a latchkey kid. And so when my mom got home, I'd already had a good two, three hours probably <laughs> times under my belt. And that's, but that's what I really think of is growing up. And it reminds me of something really happy and pleasurable. My mom would start this and all that good stuff. But it just, I remember sort of the freedom and sort of loving, like being able to watch as much TV as I wanted. <laughs> and that's what started your career as a powerhouse. <laughs> I think so, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So you identify as Black. Yes. And you have a Jewish dad. Correct. So tell us about the com- complexity of biraciality. On one hand, it's very simple. Mm-hmm. You got two parents who are from who have two different backgrounds. The end. 
what comes into it so much is just so much outside of that and things that you have no control over. Family members, growing up, people asking a lot of weird questions, this fascination of other people about it, which then transfers sometimes onto you. And as a kid, you're very impressionable. And when people ask questions or wonder about it, or there's family members who are don't get it, quite frankly, it, it leads to like a kid sort of questioning, okay, well, is there something wrong with it? Maybe there isn't something wrong with it. Is it awesome? Like you, someone who is not, in my opinion, there is an added, I don't want to say pressure. There's an added element of personal sort of, it's just an extra personal layer that other folks don't have to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, and I'm not saying it's good or bad. Like no, sometimes it. it's positive. Sometimes it's not positive, right. but it's just this added thing. Yeah. That is always sort of on the list of things to like discuss or talk about. And it's like, when you're a kid, you don't have the answers. Yeah. You know, and even well, you, parents don't have the answers. Yeah. They right. You know, they didn't think about it. Right. Right. I'm just being, you know, just to be honest. So, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you have your own racial identity development path and it's different. That is far being, more articulate than what I was trying to say. No, no, that's your, it's your experience. So it's much more heartfelt when you explain it. And, you know, the idea that people always ask you, you know, what are you? It's just such a microaggression and so offensive that it, it, I would imagine it would have some long lasting effects at how you see yourself. And it puts you on this path of trying to figure out, well, what am I? I'm both, but what does that mean? So I think you, you explain the feelings behind it. You know, and the difference is, and again, I don't have, I don't have kids. Mm -hmm. And, but if I did have kids and I ended up having kids who are biracial, I would have an answer. I now I have an understanding yeah. that the question, what are you, is a microaggression. It made me feel uncomfortable, but I didn't know enough to be like, why do you care? Or some sort of response or like, what are you? You know, right. so, <laughs> I know you are, but what am I? Right. You know, if I didn't have those tools. You knew it didn't feel right. No one was asking you because they out of love. Or kindness. Oh, that's so you good. Always had that feeling of like, and so not realizing that it was rude. You knew it was rude, but you didn't. I didn't know enough to put it back on someone else and not internalize it. Yeah. So, my point is, if I have kids, I say this to my my own nephew who's mixed race. You know, I have a half sister who's black. She married someone who's white. Mm -hmm. So. I don't call her my half sister, but just for just to explain, both of her parents are black. I asked, you know, I told him like if someone asks you that, remember, it's not up to you to help them figure out yes. to define yourself. You Absolutely. know, so some version of that because that's the one thing I sort of lacked as a kid is is sort of any tools, mm -hmm. and so. Uh, I just look out for him a little bit like that. I think that's great. That's a gift that you offered to him. Um, so how does a, a black girl from Cleveland who didn't have access to the privilege uh, make, a, make it to become such a, a 
big shot in in Hollywood, really. I mean, that's the the short story. Here's what I'll say. I, you know, I grew up in a very, back when truly it felt like there was a middle class. I grew up very middle class um, in Cleveland, in South Euclid, Ohio, which is a suburb of Cleveland. Okay. So I, my mom and dad worked their, especially my mom, really made such an effort to give me access to everything that many things that growing up in the Jim Crow South, she did not have access to. I didn't understand that at the time. I saw it as like, I have no free time after school <laughs> and I hate all of these things. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, you know, that's really how I saw it. So, but what I didn't have was... I, I I was lucky. I feel like I had some privilege. I mean, there's a lot of people who didn't grow up the way that I did. So I have to accept that there was, it made me comfortable around, I was in professional settings and things like that through my internships and things like that. So my mom and dad really pushed me to do those things. Again, I didn't understand why, nor did they articulate to me why it was important other than you just need to do it. So, um, but what I didn't have was any connections whatsoever in Los Angeles, California. I didn't have access. I had absolutely, I didn't know one person who worked in the, what we call the business out here in Los Angeles, not one person. So what I did have to do is, you know, pack up my stuff, move out here to Los Angeles. Um, my sister had moved out here the year before. So at least I wasn't totally by myself, you know, and we lived together, but I, I literally, like I'm showing my age here, you got a job out of, um, you know, the Hollywood Reporter used to come out um, every day. And in the back of it, there's a paper version. I say this for some listeners. I know you guys know this, but just in case people don't. Like some of the assistants, when I tell them this story, they're like, what? I'm like, oh my God. So there were one ads in the back of the magazine and it was um, the first job I got was at a very small um, boutique agency. And I worked there for like almost a year and, but I always wanted to, uh, wait, let me back up for a little bit. So when I was working in, in at, at, at the news station in Cleveland, I would apply for the trainee programs, assistant jobs. I couldn't even get a call or an email back. Wow. Okay. And so that's why I felt like I had to move out here. Like it's now or never. Okay. My dad passed away. My mom was much younger than my dad. She was in good health at the time. And I was like, you know what? Which is so not like me. Like this idea of picking up and moving to Los Angeles at the time, not like me at all. That's youth, I guess, you know, and yeah. an excitement and a passion for, for what you want to do. So finally, I got the shop at this small place. This is where I sort of, through that job, I met a woman named, uh, uh, I don't know, I'd say this, I'd bring her name up all the time. Her name is Deborah Miller. She had been an agent at, at uh, William Morris. And she took me out to lunch one day and she's like, what do you want to do? I told her, she's like, you need, no, she's like, you need to go work at one of the big agencies. I said, I can't get my resume in there. I can't, I can't get a call back. She's like, hold on. And that's where I really saw Deborah had been an agent there for 15 years. One of the very few female agents there who at, at the time and sort of, you know, she'd started at the time, I think it was like the, the game show group or something like that's how different TV was. So anyway, so she got me an interview. She sent it to at the time, um, Sam Haskell, 
who immediately set me up. You know, I immediately got an interview and I said what I wanted to do. I, I'd read about TV packaging. I didn't quite understand what it was, but I was like, this sounds interesting to me. This sounds like what I want to do. I'd always wanted to be a TV producer. And I was like, okay, this kind of sounds like TV producing a little bit. And, you know, I interviewed and the one person that... They said, do you want to um, interview for an agent here? She's an unscripted TV packager. I was like, TV packaging interview? Great. <laughs> and I sat down with uh, that person with Susie Younger. And she was like, su- I remember this. She was super busy. She's like, okay, got it. Let's shut the door. Let's just talk. Just tell me about yourself a little bit. We talked. I mean, truly, it had to have been like 15 minutes. And Susie was like... I don't know. I like you. Why don't we just give it a try and see if it works out? You seem smart. I mean, it was something really to that effect. Oh, sure. <laughs> if, uh, I say to, about, I tell that entire story to say, someone's got to help you open the door, whether it was Deborah, whether it was Susie, who really had no reason yeah. to be like, all right, sure. Got it. You know, like, I mean, you're an assistant is really a, a super important part of, of your, of your job. And, you know, maybe she had interviewed 15 people already and I got lucky and she was just like, oh, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. But what for whatever reason, I had someone who opened the door for me, who gave me a yes, who took a shot on me when she really had no reason to other than her gut. And like, you know, I'm going to give her a shot. Her her gut is her thing, you know? Yes, very much so. I learned that. (laughs) That's her superpower. Um, that's my whole point someone's got to help you and open the door yeah no we hear that for sure and speaking of the hollywood reporter i want to get this right you said something like this year i think it was this year if a black woman role exists there must be a commitment from the buyers to find a black director or writer for a project talk to us about the intersectionality because or the lack thereof, because that's such a huge statement for someone to make. I mean, you just have so much of my respect just coming out and saying something like that so clear and honest. So what does it look like when you have to fight those battles? I mean, there's so much, God, I don't even remember what I said. said. (laughs) What I was trying to express is right now, there is a strong interest in developing stories for around Black people, people of color, okay? I believe that, I don't believe in color, in my, let me be very careful about this. I believe that whenever you have a person, especially when you create these these stories from the ground up, it is important for the character to reflect sort of real life and like what it means to be a black woman. And what I am talking about is it can be as small as I remember in girls trip is just remember seeing like Tiffany Haddish wearing a bonnet on her head in one of the scenes. You don't need to explain it. You don't need to. And again, I'm talking about little things. Okay. Just to parent to, especially if it is more of a grounded project, sort of, Seeing, I just remember seeing a, a story about a, a, a black child and the way the, the the black child spoke to their mother, and I was like, "Who wrote this?" Like, there is no way in hell. And again, 
I am talking about these exactly. teeny tiny little nuances. Mm -hmm. And I think it is important if you're committing to telling stories authentically, and that's what you truly want to do. If, for example, you have a black woman in the lead, I think, I believe you have a responsibility to try and find a person of color to tell that story. I love it. I love your honesty around it. I love that you're, you know, unapologetic about it. You know, we talk to a lot of people and a lot of people are like, well, they have to be ready, you know, and the fact that you're saying, look, it should be a prerequisite is exactly what it should be. Here's just what makes sense. And also taking a position, like yeah. you are very strongly taking a position. Here's what I've often said as well. Someone gave me a shot. Someone opened the door. Susie was willing to say, if it doesn't work out, doesn't work out. Maybe it won't. Right. There has to be this level of commitment if you are truly committed to break a few eggs before you get an omelet or whatever the saying is. Yeah, yeah I think the, the point you make those, if if they're ready, if they really want to, if they truly want to, that's, that's the piece I think that- yes, you are truly committed yeah. to it. Then do it. The problem is you are not, this is, and this is the struggle is- I got a lot of incoming calls about we really needed a, you know, a, a black female, you know, showrunner. Guess what? This conversation should have started five, 10 years ago. So there is a bigger pool of folks to choose from. There aren't who are now showrunners. Right. So it takes years to get that experience and to get a shot. And perhaps maybe the room didn't, you know, their first job as a story editor, or, you know, as a staff writer didn't work out, but they get, they get chance just like their brethren. They need to get chance. Not every room's going to be great. You should still be able to get a shot at a second room or not have to repeat, you know, the, the, the title that you were in your last room two and three times that happens a lot less now, but I believe, I mean, I would really see that a lot when I first really started doing scripted television in 2014, which is so-and-so had been a staff writer two and three times. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. But I love that you know that and you speak to it and you, you kind of already answered this question, but you know, society is so resistant and uncomfortable when we talk about these conversations and about racism. How do you navigate these conversations at your work? And you've already given an example, but if there's another one, I think it's really helpful for people to understand what you have to do to get this point across. Sometimes you just have to say it. Like I, part of our job is to be advocates for our clients and to and, and just to have dialogue and conversation. Sometimes you just have to say it. You know, you, you really just have to say it. And sometimes it might take, I will say for the most part, people are willing to listen and willing to hear it. I think you just have to remember that you might have to say it a couple of times or sort of couch it around specific examples. You know, everybody sort of learns and, 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 and receives information in a different way. But... What I will say is I do have, and that's what I will be, I, I have to give a thumbs up to the place, to the company that I work at now. There is a comfort level about saying these things without feeling that I will be penalized. I don't have the fear that being honest will reflect on me in, in some way. You know, and 
I, I, you know, there's this willingness to receive the information, but you had to make that way. You know, I mean, you had to be bold enough to make that way. And, and I don't think that should be minimized. I know myself, you know, part of the reason I don't work full time for anybody anymore is because I get tired of being fired and threatened. <laughs> it's like, I'm not going to do that anymore because I'm, I'm unapologetic at this point in my life. I'm going to call it like I see it. I've got a lot of years in the game. And so I just don't want to minimize, you know, what you had to do, the skin you had to burn to get to where you are. I think it's really incredible because okay. there's a lot of white people in your position who are not willing to. There's a lot of head nodding. We've had shows pulled because... Yeah. They said a little something that might be offensive to their boss. So it's not like, you know, you're in a category. And I think you, you know, very proud to say that and and appreciate that so much. Thank you. I I appreciate that. It's true. You know, look, black artists are pigeonholed so much in Hollywood. What do you feel your role is in navigating it for your clients? And again, you've spoken to this a little bit, but just give us an idea of kind of like the rough terrain. My role in navigating for my clients is something that I think when I get a call about a project or, you know, interest, you know, I, I like to be as clear and articulate about why a client potentially won't lean into something. For example, I have a client who's like, listen, I, I, I'm, I'm personally not interested in material that is about the first black insert here. Okay. And that I am not interested in, you know, projects that sort of feature, you know, trauma. Mm. So rather than just saying this isn't going to be for him or her, do try to articulate to executives or producers why they might not, why this, uh, you know, a particular client might not lean into something. Because I think people on the other end need to remember and hear and understand that Black folks like sci-fi and genre and comic books as much as we like comedy and drama, just like everybody else, we're fans of, of film and television. And so I think that's as important, I, I think it's important for me to articulate that to executives and producers with whom I have conversations. Yeah. That totally makes sense. Yeah, I personally can't see another movie about the enslaved experience. And my, and my sister We were just talking about that yesterday, JD, right? Literally. Yeah, my sister doesn't understand why. She says, you know, we should support every movie that comes out. And I want to support every movie that comes out and every TV show that comes out that's representing us adequately. The problem is that the trauma that's accompanied with it. It is, Judy, this is, I'm going to agree with you, but I also really feel strongly that those stories, if told in a way that is not trauma porn, there's a difference about telling a story, talking about how it it compares to is a result of, you know, that there is connective tissue, you know, what there are, you know, there is a many of existing institutions have their start institutions cultural responses and just but they have their roots in slavery whether it's black women being sterilized whether it's you know essentially prisons being sort of like a new form of 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 slavery i think if there is a connective tissue and a message to be told that i am a fan of no and i I'm just saying this for myself. I don't no, want to no. see trauma porn in which you can tell on screen. And by the way, I don't believe 
I could always tell who's put those that stuff together. Yes. yes. But it's trauma porn. That's yes. Yes. That's my point. Exactly. I think that you said it so well. That's exactly my point. Thank you for uh, adding to that. That's an important point to make. Take it away, Susie. Okay. So Ava, my love, I've been following up with a lot of people of color from my past to apologize for not using my privilege responsibly. So white people's privilege is pretty invisible to white people. And I didn't learn about mine till I took a class in grad school from JD. I want you to be super honest. What mistakes did I make when you were on my desk? Oh, God. I mean, Susie, I truly mean this and not in a sort of like, oh, everything's okay. I really... I really don't remember sort of because I truly like you were the one of the only agents there at the time who was like openly fighting mm. for certain kinds of color. I mean, I don't know if I should get specific about one of them. You, can. you, you can. know, you know, Susie represented Monique for a very long time. And I saw how hard she fought for her yeah. when she would get comments you know, sort of feedback or I should say, you know, Susie would say, what about X? What about her for this? And the response would sometimes be, I'm sorry, what? You know, and Susie would say, you know what? I don't think I like that because, you know, like this is essentially, I'm not loving this response. It is not enough for me. So I really saw how she would call out feedback and responses. So mistakes, I don't want to, I mean, truly, Susie, either I I don't have a memory of it, but like I just, like I said, I started out, I think I started out this conversation by saying Susie had her own set of, of, of challenges in, in, in that role, especially at that time. Susie, I really can't point to any mistake. I mean that. Oh, I thank really, you. I, Thank you. What I do remember is you and I taking photos of Monique because no one couldn't get her arrested. No one knew who she was and putting them all over the kitchen <laughs> so that the agents would see the pictures of them. But, you know, sweetie, you started your career as a trainee at WME, right? The, I did it. No, you didn't. Okay. Oh, I, here's what I will tell you. I think I think there's no, nothing secret about this. I started out as an assistant, okay? Susie advocated for me and was like, I think if you want, I remember she was like, it's a conversation about, I would like to push for you to be the coordinator. I think I can get you to be made a trainee. I didn't understand yeah. how important being a trainee was, honestly, because I had that, that sort of Midwestern work ethic, which is if I work hard, it will be rewarded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will say I became a trainee when I was working for Dave Birch after. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I don't mean to, and, but I just remember Susie even advocating at the time. I'm not understanding how important it was to be a trainee and how prestigious, how, you know, prestigious it was, prestigious it was. And Susie's like, what is the matter with you? You know, not she didn't say that, but just like she I'm could. trying to help you. 
Oh, <laughs> thank you. Well, you were. Yes, it did become a trainee. Sorry, it did become a trainee. But I just wanted to sort of say how I wasn't envisioned as a trainee when I first got to the company. I sort of had to say, I want to be a trainee. Mm-hmm. So proud of you. You work with some of the most notable Black artists from Charlemagne to Spike Lee. Share some of the battles that you've had to fight to represent those clients in an equitable way. Can, can, I, just say, um, can I just say before that what sure. Charlemagne has done for mental health has been amazing in our profession. I just really appreciate what he's done. I think it's something so- that's very important to him yeah. and I think is important is just essential to talk about in the black community, which is often mental health is not addressed, acknowledged, sort of seen as something that is for other people or that, you know, I've got everything else to deal with right now. I don't have time to like deal with my mental health. That seems like a luxury. Right. So what I would just say about representing people of color is you just always have to have an understanding of not just the deal that you're that you're negotiating, but other deals and the marketplace. And something Charles King said once in an interview, and he laughs about it now because it's like, I don't remember saying that, but I never forgot it. He's like, you have to be fluent in all languages of the entertainment business. When I worked for Susie for a year and a half, especially at the time, what I took into the feature space was this understanding of packaging, unscripted, how it worked, how lucrative it could be, how it could add value to other areas of the person's business. So I just think it's really important for me to have a 360 perspective about not only my client's deal, other deals that have been made so that, you know, at that studio or that network, so that I can sort of point to facts and say, I know you paid X for that, you know, for this particular client, all things being equal, um, you know, this is why I'm asking for this for my client. Don't you think that's the experience of people of color in general? You know, we have to run faster, uh, write better, jump higher, all of these things in order to be able to have some access to things. And the way I look at it is it's a part of what we were taught and nurtured to just accept, not even understand growing up. Would you agree with that? Yeah, the answer is yes. I think what I'm trying to say is I'm sort of thinking back a little bit about all these things that my mother had me do. And again, I didn't see it. Again, I just saw it as as taking away my personal free time. My mom was trying to give me access to and skills probably to be better because she probably thought you had to be better. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to ask her that after when I go home. Honestly, you know, I just... Oh, I give her my love. I sure will. I sure will. Just this is the other interesting thing is, is, is having dialogues with parents who are of a certain age and sort of asking them these questions like about like, mom, did you think about that? About being better fast? You know, like, is that why you wanted me to do that stuff? You know, it's anyway, I digress. We were going back. No, 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 no. It's <laughs> no you know, like, I wonder, I just, I think that's really important. 
you know, my mom's 81 and, and, you know, we've been having these great conversations about, you know, I asked my mom once, do you consider yourself a feminist? And she was like, she didn't have a, a like a negative visceral re- reaction. But when I told her what I thought a feminist was defined as, she, in my opinion, to me, and she was like, oh, again, it was not a, it's a term of luxury that she didn't think about. I think that's a term that growing up, I use that as an example of like having these kinds of conversations with my dad yeah. now about race and things like that. It's the one thing I really miss about my dad being gone because when he died, I was, I was an adult, but I was a kid, mm-hmm. you know, I was not, I became an adult after my father died. But I really would love to have some of these conversations about growing up biracial, about just different things, you know, different. I, I wonder what our relationship would have been like as an, as an, as an adult. And I, I, that, I treasure this time with my mom being able to sort of have these conversations and sort of like listening to how she grew up. And there's always a positivity about it. Like I, you know, so, but It'll be little things. My mom telling me just today, she's like, yeah, I used to have to go pick up our cousin in Fort, you know, I was in Macon and I'd have to drive down to Florida to pick them up. And I was like, I was like, you drove all the way that she's like, Ava, we didn't drive. I took the bus. It's like, you know, I was like, of course you like, who's got a car, you know? And, and I was like, I was like, wait a minute. How old were you? She's like, oh, 14 or 15. I was like, holy shit. Yeah. I just, how scared now I would be as an adult to take a bus from Macon, Georgia to in Tallahassee or wherever my cousin, you know, my cousin was like, and so I say all of these things to say that what felt like just the way things were is so fascinating to have these conversations with my mom about race and how things were back then. I am not naive. Right. It is one thing to be comfortable for myself, hearing, remembering fucking racist shit was and seeing like, wow, we're still kind of dealing with like voter suppression and all these others. Like, man, and, and this is a thing that really, I think my mom's sort of seeing George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, all of these things coming up. And I remember after Breonna Taylor was they didn't bring charge. You know, you know, my mom said very quietly to herself was where she's like, God, they just keep, they just keep getting away with it. And I'm like, I was like, wow. I was like, mom was, what was going on down there in Macon when like during this time, did people like, get, you know, she hasn't really talked about it a lot, but I'm like, I don't think she's talking about just right now. Right. Yeah. How much right. very little does it feel like very little has changed? Yeah. Right. Another thing, JD and I talk about all the time. Well, on that note, for you, we talked about mental health and we're two mental health clinicians. In this business, how do you maintain your own mental health? Susie, I will say for the until about I would say four, three, four years ago. I was one of those, maybe five years ago, I was one of those agents who sort of fed off the excitement of being stressed mm-hmm. out and sort of 
found it exciting and sort of sexy, you know, to talk about how out you are, how, how hard the job is, and how busy you are. And I realized I was feeding off of that. Mm-hmm. It's so unhealthy. And I, oh, you know what it was? My mom fell about four years ago. She's fine now. Okay. She okay. fell. And it was really the first time where I, as a, like now as an adult, where I started realizing there are other things in your life that are more important, equally as important as your job. And once I learned how to sort of transfer some of that energy into other thinking about other people, about thinking that not everything is just about sort of like living in the moment, that really helped. I also, you gain confidence, you gain experience, you gain seniority, and you just realize as an agent, quality of life is essential. (laughs) It is essential. It seems so stupid, so silly and simple to say, but you have to have something else. I will tell you, I say this all the time, and Susie, I, I don't know if you'll ever remember this. Susie, I, I, I realize there were other things going on at the time, but I, I was always like, in the morning, I walk every day because it is the only time of the day that is just for me. And I have to have some time that is just for me. I listen to music. I try not to take calls. I try not to look at emails. I try not to do anything because I need... 45 minutes in a day in which I am literally like my mind goes blank. That's really, and that's even new in the pandemic. Trust me, I wasn't getting up in the morning to go for a walk, but it also makes me feel so much of this job. And I finally learned to accept it is more things are going to not work out than are going to work out. The effort sometimes you put into something in this job does not always result in it doesn't always result in the, in the, in the way that you want. I learned that, accepted it, understood it because that used to be so frustrating for me. I was like, I work so hard. I'm trying to put these deals together or, you know, and it just, things fall apart. That's the business. But it used to cause me so much personal anxiety and anguish. Oh. And now I just realize, I don't know, such is life, you know? <laughs> and I think the challenge is I've, how I've had to sort of pivot the way that I agent and represent people is I try to tell clients that. I said, listen, if something doesn't go your way or it doesn't go, come together, you have a, give yourself a day to mourn it, okay? Because yeah, you deserve great. it. That's great. And we want to move on and figure out another strategy or a way to move forward or how to pivot or whatever, because you do deserve that moment of mourning, okay? Like give it to yourself. And then you got to do it. Whatever, whatever you ascribe to, let go and let God write it down on a piece of paper and then tear it up and, and, or something, you know, but you have to like, that was the other thing I learned how to let go, not holding on to so many resentments that has really contributed to my quality of my mental health over the last, and I mean, resentments about jobs and things not working out. And I had to let that go. Because it was it was really getting in the way. Makes sense. Ava, you are just extraordinary. And I <laughs> you are, and I just wanna thank you so much for coming on. But I also just I wanna say I'm so proud of you, but JD would reframe that and say you should be so proud of yourself for all the work that you've done and using your voice and continue to do it because you are literally making history. 
the movie that won the Academy Award that I know you fought for. I know that story. And look what happened. So continue to fight. And I'm going to let JD ask the last question. Okay. Thank you, Susie. Love you. I really do. I so you kind of answered it, but I'd like you to tie it all up for us, which is what does changing the narrative mean to you? It means challenging the narrative, I guess. It is changing the narrative. And again, I can only sort of put it in my own perspective is you've got to challenge it. You've got to be willing to fight for it. And we shouldn't have to fight to change the narrative so much, you know, because that gets exhausting, man. But you just, you have to be willing to, like I said, lose a few friends, lose, like, crack a few eggs before you get your omelet, whatever, know that there is going to be, you know, what you have to do. Changing the narrative is getting comfortable with feeling uncomfortable. That is what I will say. Okay. And anything that you do that leads from that is you can't change the narrative without feeling comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I don't like feeling uncomfortable. Let me make that crystal clear. (laughs) I don't like, I don't like arguing. I don't like, I don't like drama. I don't like, I don't want to, you know, like, I don't want to deal with this. Like, but it's like, okay, I got to say something or do something or whatever. And I'm not just talking about just sort of very specific, you know, real challenges that are facing us today, whether, you know, in, in, in the news and, and with, with poor folks like, like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, I am just talking about all I can do the way that I can change the narrative is realize that maybe I can't change the world, but I can affect what is around me. And I think that that's really important. Things I used to just let go, microaggressions, comments, things like that. Changing the narrative means, like I said, challenging. Like, what did you mean by that? Or I don't quite understand. Can you explain that? Or, you know, just sort of not being afraid to say, to make someone else dig a little bit more deeply. I love it. And I just want to say personally, you know, I don't have a lot of warm and fuzzies about the industry. I find myself very frustrated more times than not, particularly when I talk to people and try to get them to understand the importance of literally everything you've said today. So I just want to thank you so much for being who you are and having the energy, the the forethought, the desire, um, and now the power to make shit happen. I have a lot of respect for you. And it, it was even better meeting you than I thought it was going to be. You're amazing. You're amazing. Thank you so much for coming on. And hopefully you'll come back again. No, I'd love to. And I'm, I feel like I made this so much about the business. Yeah. And it's, it's it's so much of what I do. It's the only way sometimes that I can relate. Yeah. It's my not- message is by comparing it to what I do for a living, I guess. That's Absolutely not. One, by the way. You integrated it very well, believe it or not. You really did. You did a great job of giving us an idea of who you are personally and what you've accomplished professionally. So... Yeah, no apologies necessary. Thank you Thank again. You. So much. Thank you. This is I this is really like the highlight of, you know. Oh, wow. We'll take that. I was excited when Susie asked me to do it. The work you're doing here is so special and so fantastic and so unique and I really love the honesty and that and the uncomfortable conversations and topics that you're willing to address. That's what it takes. Thank you so much. Really. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Great. Bye, Susie. Bye. Take care. Bye, JD. JD and I want to thank our fabulous producers at I Am Music Group. And for all of you out there who want to do your own podcast, go to IamMusicGroup.com and the team will hit you back. 
Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller.